Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we pray for the revelation of your Holy Spirit. We recognize that nothing that we attempt to do of this nature is ever going to be successful without the help of your Spirit. And so, Lord, I pray that each one of us would have hearing ears, that something that is said during this time would touch all of us and move us and motivate us. And I pray for the ability this morning to speak the words that you would have me to speak. And I pray that the words that come out of my mouth are anointed by you and that you would anoint our ears to receive them. We thank you in the name of Jesus. Amen. I wanted to talk this morning about enlarging your scope of influence. Enlarging your scope of influence. There were so many different titles I could come up with, and uh, this is about the best I could come up with. And this is, comes from a thought that says that in the day in which we live, which is saying a lot, there are many prophetic words regarding a move of the Spirit in revival. There are many people out there, people that I trust, um, people that I don't know, but there are many words in one, one thread that we've been hearing, not just in the last few months, but after, for the last little while. One thread we've been hearing is that God is going to move in people's hearts. And you've already seen, Roddy talked about uh, that when, when the unfortunate event happened in Minneapolis, and uh, basically an injustice was done. Um, what wasn't broadcast on the national news and the media, although I saw it in some of the print media, was that there began to be a revival in the streets. People began to gather, worship God, and to offer up praises to God, and people were getting saved uh, by the droves every day, every night, because... Of what happened there. These prophetic words that have been sent uh, from the Lord remind us that during tough times, during times uh, when there's depression, when there's a uh, tumult, that God begins to move in men and women's hearts, we become ripe for God to, to speak to us. And people who are searching, in other areas for fulfillment, realize they can't find it there. Bible says in the last days, it shall be that God declares that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Say all flesh. All flesh may or may not respond, but God said that he would pour out his spirit. That's Joel 2. You can go to Acts 2 and read it again. God promises that he will pour out his spirit on all flesh. I can't tell you what that looks like. I can't tell you, you know, what, how that develops in our world. But I can tell you that we live in a time when the church must respond to what we see and we must be prepared for the harvest. Let me tell you about 1968. Some of you weren't even born. 1968, we were having a contentious presidential election. 
1968, we had social unrest. We had riots. Most of these were due to the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. We had the Hong Kong flu. Over 100,000 people died from the Hong Kong flu in 1968. Does that sound familiar to you? I mean, you know, presidential election, social unrest, pandemic. But something else began during that time, and we call it the Jesus Movement. Yes. During those days of the early 60, late 60s and early 70s, there, the move of God began to spread across the land, and we saw a movement of young people coming to Christ like never before in the midst of all of this unrest. Some of us lived through that. We got some great music from those days. Some of you remember that we've had a guy named Randy Stonehill here twice. One of the great pioneers of Jesus music in those days. Phil Keggy lives right down here in Franklin. Uh, Larry Norman. I mean, the list goes on. Second chapter of Acts. Some of you can name your own favorite ones. But we got a new generation of music that began to speak to young people. And yes, my wedding picture, my hair's to my shoulders. Yes. And that's because I had just had a haircut. We look different, but I want to tell you that the move of God was sovereign. And you would go to, you would go to churches all over this country and God would be moving. Amen. Except for the ones who were dead as a doornail. You just wouldn't go to those. I want to tell you that behind all of the stuff we're facing, I expect a new move of God. You can call it what you want. I don't know what it's going to look like. Back then it was the Jesus movement. It'll be a Jesus movement. The name doesn't matter. What matters is that history teaches us that in these times, God moves by His Spirit because men's hearts are tender. What are we going to do? What are we going to do to prepare for such a move and a harvest of God? I've often thought about the folks in Acts chapter 2. Peter preached the sermon. 3,000 people came to Christ. You know, before that, there were 120 of them in the upper room. I've often thought about what in the world would you do? We don't even have 120 people here today. We might count everybody watching at home. What would we do if God said, here's 3,000 people. What are you going to do with them? I crawl in a hole, I guess. I don't know. Yeah, we'd figure something out. They did too. What are we going to do to prepare for such a move and harvest of God. And I want to tell you that the preparation for that kind of a move has to go beyond what we call the leadership gifts. Some call it five-fold ministry. The preparation for the harvest has to go beyond what we would typically identify as ministry. And it did in, in the 60s and 70s. A lot of what went on during those days was with people who weren't quote-unquote ministers or pastors or apostles. As a matter of fact, an organization cropped up during that time called the Full Gospel Businessmen's Fellowship International. One of the greatest moves of God in that day that we had business people coming together. 
What has to happen if we're going to respond to what God's doing, what has to happen is that we must see more and be more. Now, we're going to read Isaiah 54 in a moment, if you want to go ahead and turn. Isaiah 54, we're just going to read the first 10 verses, but it's addressing Israel. Now, we we realize that Israel is a type of the church. Uh, Some teach that that the church replaced Israel. Uh, Problem is, Israel's still here. I don't accept that theology, but I do believe that Israel gives us an image of the church to come. And Isaiah 54, God's addressing the nation. And in so doing, he not only is addressing the church corporately, he's addressing all of us individually. But the main message is corporate. And so Isaiah 54 We're going to read verses 1 through 10. If you would stand while we read the scriptures in honor of the sacredness of God's word. Verse 1 in the English Standard Version saying, O barren one who did not bear, bring forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not been in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married, says the Lord. Verse 2. Enlarge the place of your tent and let the curtains of your habitations be stretched out. Do not hold back. Lengthen your cords and strengthen your stakes. For you will spread abroad to the right and to the left and your offspring will possess the nations and will, and will people the desolate cities. Fear not, for you will not be ashamed. Be not confounded, for you will not be disgraced. For you will forget the shame of your youth and the reproach of your widowhood. You will remember no more. For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. And the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer, the God of the whole earth. He is called. For the Lord has called you like a wife, deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. For a brief moment I deserted you. But with great compassion, I will gather you. In overflowing anger for a moment, I hid my face from you. But with everlasting love, I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. And this is like the days of Noah to me, as I swore that the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth. So I have sworn that I will not be angry with you and will not rebuke you. For the mountains may depart and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you. And my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord, who has compassion on you. You can be seated. Again, a corporate message that works out in our lives individually, that we would be those who would respond. If you watched the midweek video, and evidently a bunch of you did, uh, you heard me reference 2 Timothy 2.21, where he tells us or encourages us to be useful to the master of the house and be ready for every good work. And that's what we want to do today. We want to respond to God so that we can be useful to the master. Uh, Who in their right mind wants to be not useful to the master? We all do. And so he he gives us these verses and he teaches us about the value of being able to enlarge your place. 
Enlarge your place. Uh, enlarge in this passage means to make room for something. It means to open wide and make room. And really, uh, this is a good definition, I think, and that is to make room for more than you can accomplish on your own. Make room for more than you can accomplish on your own. If you can accomplish it on your own, you don't need God. But I'm going to tell you that what God faces gives you in the in the uh, line of mission in in a mission world. What God gives you is something you cannot do, and He makes sure of that. And so we're, He's teaching Israel, and He's teaching us, and He's teaching the church: enlarge your place, open wide, enlarge your place of thinking. Enlarge your place of thinking. We as human beings, we have finite thinking. We can't help that. But we need to enlarge our place of thinking so that God can say some things to us that may or may not fit into our preconceived notions. Isaiah says, For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. God's thoughts are higher than your thoughts. And you and I, we must enlarge our place of thinking so that God can say something to us that doesn't quote unquote make sense to us. God says to Peter and the disciples, uh, we need to pay our taxes. So go down to the boat dock and catch a fish and open up the fish's mouth and there'll be a coin in the mouth of the fish and that will pay our taxes. That makes no sense. None. You know, you, you got two guys going down, going, and what I'm saying, you, you're going to have to, you're going to have to go back and tell him that we didn't find anything. No, we, you're going to tell him. We, we, let's at least catch a fish. It makes no sense, but if you make room, if you enlarge your thinking Amen. to say, well, let's at least go down there and drop a hook in the water. Of course, I'm sure it was a net in their case. And lo and behold, there's a coin. A lot of you, if we could continue to testify today, would testify at times that God has moved you in a direction that made absolutely no sense. And yet you can see the hand of God in it. We need to enlarge our capacity to obey God. To obey God. How do you do that? Well, if you understand that the word obey simply means to hear under. To obey God is to hear under God. You're not going to obey God unless you're under God, unless you're submitted to God, unless you have abdicated yourself to him, unless, unless you have subjected yourself to him. But when you do that and you hear him in that posture, then you're going to respond to what he says, and that's how you obey God. How do we enlarge the, the capacity to obey God? Humble ourselves before the mighty hand of God. And then hear what he has to say. And God in that, in that day will enlarge your sphere of influence and he'll enlarge your usefulness. He'll enlarge your, everybody say my, my usefulness. Not the pastor, not the prophet, not the evangelist, you. You may be one of those, but I'm just saying that that has nothing to do with it. He'll enlarge your impact around you. I'm not calling all of us to worldwide evangelists. I'm not calling all of us to, to worldwide famous ministries. 
you know, all, I'm not calling all of us to any of that. I'm saying that God will enlarge your scope of influence and impact where you are. Now, some of you, he may send around the world and you can deal with that with him. But that's, that's not what I'm talking about. I want to look at four unlikely characters who had their scope of influence enlarged. I'm going to try to be brief, but, but I just want to look at these briefly. And the first one we'll look at is Elisha. We looked at him briefly last week. I'm not turning to any scripture passages, but you can find this story in 1 Kings 19 and 2 Kings 2. Elisha, as we remember from last week, Elijah was told by the Lord, go find Elisha and anoint him as the prophet to take your place. And I didn't talk about it last week, but I wonder what Elijah thought. What do you mean, take my place? Am I, am I going somewhere? What's up? So he does. He goes and finds him and puts his mantle on his shoulder, and Elisha begins to find him. Remember, remember this. Elisha was found in the field with his hand on a plow. Don't miss that. By the way, all four of our characters in this story were found doing something productive. They weren't sitting around twiddling their thumbs. Say, well, when God does something with me, I'll go do it. No, they had their hand on some kind of a plow, proverbially speaking, in this case, literally. He was found in the field with his hand on a plow. He had a team of 12 oxen that he was plowing with, and he was the 12th team, so which meant he must have been, might have been the youngest in his family. He was plowing with his team with 12 and he was, the Bible says he was the last. He had 144 oxen in front of him. Watch your step comes to mind. Think about it. He had, at that point, he had no idea what was going on. He had no idea. All he was doing was being faithful to his team of oxen. He wasn't even responsible for the other 11, just this team. And he did it. And Elijah finds him doing this. You thought he'd find him doing things of a man of power and faith. He was plowing with oxen. And then he said, I'll follow you. And Elijah said, what are you talking about? I ain't done anything for you. And Elisha did an interesting thing. He went back and he took his oxen that he'd been plowing with, all 12, and he took his instruments, his plow and all the things. He burned it all in a pile, every bit of it. What was he doing? I think he was demonstrating to God and to Elijah that he had, he was separating himself from what he, where he was and he was enlarging his capacity to go where he was going, even though he had no idea. He had no idea what was ahead. He just knew that the prophet had called him. Bible talks about him being Elijah's attendant. It talks about in 2 Kings 3 that he poured water on the hands of Elijah, which was his way of serving the prophet. We know that he was tested. Elijah said to him, stay here. I'm going to Bethel. And Elisha said, not happening. I'm going with you. I'm not staying here. So they went to Bethel, and Elijah said, stay here. I'm going to Jericho. And Elisha said, not happening. I'm going with you. I'm not staying here. I'm going with you. And then a third time, he said, uh, stay here. I'm going to the Jordan. 
Elisha said, if you're going to the Jordan, I'm going to the Jordan. I'm not staying here. What was happening? Elijah was testing Elisha to see what he was made of. Because a lot of people at the first test would have said, hey, yeah, that's a good out for me. I'm out of here. But he wasn't doing that. He had committed himself. And and so now we know that Elijah, Elijah gets caught up into heaven on a chariot. His mantle, his cloak drops from the chariot. Elisha goes and picks it up, strikes the waters of the Jordan and says, where is the God of Elijah? By the way, the scenery had changed quite a bit from when he was following 12 teams of oxen. Now, I want to say this, and I want you to hear it really clear. Two parts of this. Don't despise or denigrate the day of following the oxen with your hand on the plow. I used to know people years ago that would sit around moaning and groaning. Why isn't God using me? When is God ever going to call me to be a preacher? Well, I don't understand why this hasn't happened. And, you know, put your hand on the plow. Put your hand on the plow. And let me just say this, too. Now, hear this clearly. For some people, the oxen is your place of assignment. Don't look at plowing the oxen as, well, this is the old menial stuff I'm doing right now. But maybe one day God will exalt me. Maybe your exaltation is that you're plowing oxen today. Do that the best you can for the rest of your life or until God gives you a different direction. But in his case, he enlarged his scope of influence by joining him to Elisha. Elijah. These two guys get me. I was named them John and Bob or something. And was there when Elijah was caught up and assumed his place. Another guy we got to look at is, is David. You can, again, we're not turning, but you can find this story in 1 Samuel 16. When, when Samuel was going to anoint the king, I believe Brother Charles or somebody talked about this recently, but going to anoint the king, and, uh, and they, they went through all the sons of Jesse, and the Lord said, he's not here. And, and Samuel said, is there another one? And Jesse basically said, well, yeah, there is a little runny a little squirt out there in the field. We don't want really to count him very much, but he is one of my sons. He said, well, you need to go get him. And so they brought him in, and God said, he's the one. And of course, they all looked at each other. They thought the big, tall, strong brother was the one, but the little squirt had been out in the fields with the sheep. He was the one. Which brings us that famous verse that we many of us have heard many times, God looks on the heart and man looks on the outward appearance. We find David tending his father's sheep once again. By the way, not only were these four people doing something positive for God, all four, all four of them were doing something that we would consider to be menial labor. Plowing uh, oxen, tending the sheep. And again, I echo and repeat again, sometimes that is your assignment. And if it is, you'll have the anointing to do it. But he was tending his father's sheep out in the field. He wasn't even at seminary. Nothing wrong with seminary, but he wasn't there. Josephus says that he was 10 years old. Now, most scholars believe he was about 15 when they anointed him as king. 
and, and brought him in. Samuel anointed him, and, and he was going to be the king. Now, the next time we find David, he's back in the field with the flock. Wait a minute. He's anointed king. You go get him from the field. He's anointed king. Hallelujah. David's going to be the king. And again, if it's a TV show, the next scene, he's back out in the field tending the flock. David was immediately, everybody say immediately, installed as king. And because God gives you a direction, doesn't matter, it's going to, doesn't mean that it's going to happen immediately. So he's out back out in the fields with the flock. Somewhere along the way, he gets connected to Saul, who is the king. Saul's got a demon, and the Bible says a spirit, an evil spirit from God. I'll let you sort that out. And here's what it says, and so it was. Whenever the spirit from God was upon Saul, that David would take a harp and play it with his hand. Then Saul would become refreshed and well, and the distressing spirit would depart from him. We know this. We live in Music City, USA. We live in Music City Church. Might as well be in this church. Music has power. It can be good power or bad power, but music has power. And God uses music to set people free. And so every time David would begin to play, it didn't even say he was singing. It just said when he began to play. This distressing spirit, this evil spirit began, would leave Saul alone and he'd get refreshed. David had to contend with his brother's jealousy and envy. Naturally, all 11 thought one of them was going to be the king and this little runt from the field, he's the one that gets anointed king. So they had to deal with his jealousy and they're fighting against the Philistines and Goliath is out there taunting them and he comes bringing some food. And acts like he wants to do something. They said, well, you, you're out there tending these few sheep. Those few sheep of our fathers. You, you need to go back and just do that. Also, uh, David was, was uh, evidently not a noticeable part of Saul's life because David shows up and, and volunteers to go fight Goliath. And Saul said, who is this guy? Now remember, he'd been playing music for him. And, letting, and seeing God deliver him. So evidently he didn't pay much attention to David. How many of you think he might should have? He became king only after demonstrating loyalty and honor to the office of the king on multiple occasions. There were multiple occasions where he had opportunity to kill Saul or dishonor Saul and he chose not to. So God began to enlarge his place of influence. Now, in his case, he became king. I don't know about you. I don't want to be king. Ruth, another character. And if you want to read about Ruth, read the whole book of Ruth. It's four chapters, by the way. I would encourage you, if you don't know the story of Ruth, that you do that. It's just four chapters. Ruth is a Moabitess. Uh, Moab is son of Lot. Lot was obviously Abraham's nephew who went to Sodom and Gomorrah. Abraham went another way. And out of that lineage becomes a, a son named, named uh, Moab. 
and it's basically a pagan uh, group of people. Remember that because Abraham had the promise of God did not necessarily mean that his nephew was included. His children were, but not necessarily his nephew. And so God rescues Lot, by the way. But anyway, she is a Moabitess. She's the son of, uh, uh, who's the son of Lot. The marriage was not forbidden because there was a connection between the Jewish people and the Moabites, but it was, it was, uh, excluded. They were excluded from the congregation until the 10th generation. Different. She marries a, a, a Israelite, a Jewish boy who moved into their land. He dies. Now I'm giving you the thumbnail. You got to read the other, the four chapters. He dies. And she says to her mother-in-law, her mother-in-law says, well, now that my son has died and I'm too old to have any more sons, you need to go back to your land. And I'm going back, I'm going back to Israel and you need to stay here in, in Moab. And she said, no, I'm going to stay with you. No, I, I got to go back because her, her husband died too. She makes covenant with her mother-in-law. Now, I know we make jokes about mother-in-laws. Anyway. She said to her mother-in-law, and we, we, we use this in songs. There's a song. As a matter of fact, at our wedding a little over 47 years ago, we had this song sung. Wherever you go, I will go. And wherever you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God my God. She makes a covenant with her Jewish mother-in-law. And so she travels back into her land, Naomi's land, with her mother-in-law. She meets Boaz. Ruth is very poor. Boaz is very wealthy. He, he has crops. And so she humbles herself before Boaz. There was a custom of the day that you would leave gleanings as you were harvesting your crops. You would always leave gleanings for the poor people. They would come behind you and pick up some of the gleanings for them for themselves so they would have something to eat. That was the way they were provided for. And so she she comes out on the scene to get some of the gleanings. Boaz says, I, I can't say what I started to say, but Boaz says, now that's a pretty good-looking girl right there. Who is she? Who is that girl? And they say, well, she's the daughter-in-law of Naomi. Her husband has died. He tells his workers, uh, when she's following you for the gleanings, how about you leave a bunch of extra? Leave a lot, leave some extra gleanings so she can pick up. Anyway, she finds favor with Boaz. Moabitess, pagan, lowly, poor. She finds favor with Boaz and she's actually redeemed the law of, Mo, of the law of Israel that day said that she could be redeemed by a, an, a relative, and Boaz was a relative of Naomi's, and he redeemed her and married her as his wife. She allowed God's hand to develop her circumstances. She didn't push. She didn't say, "Hey, how about me?" She was just there. She put herself in the right places and she had enlarged her scope of thinking. Guess what God did with Ruth? Moabitess, pagan. God put her in the lineage of the Lord Jesus. Moabitess, pagan, 
Lord Jesus. Because she's the great-grandmother of David. If you do the lineage. Another, another side note. It doesn't matter what you, what you think of your life. It doesn't matter what your history is. It doesn't matter what your lineage is. God is a redeeming God. Remembering Joseph, the husband of Mary, Joseph's ancestor had violated God and God had cursed him and said, no one from your tribe will sit on the throne again. There was an uncle that sat on the throne for a while and then no one. And then God comes along and redeems Joseph, Joseph's family because now Jesus is the legal lineage of Joseph. Think about it. He's the legal offspring of Joseph. And so now Jesus has restored the family of Joseph even though they were cursed. I can't get into that. I've written about it. And it's highly likely that Ruth never met David or knew of his impact and his success. We don't know of any, any record of that. And finally, Gideon, Judges 6. Gideon is the youngest member of an insignificant family in a secondary tribe. In other words, Gideon is the nobody of nobodies. Now, there are people sitting in this room and people sitting at home watching. You feel like you're the nobody of nobodies. This is, this is Gideon. Gideon is hiding in a wine press because the Midianites are after him and giving him trouble. He's hiding in the wine press, threshing some wheat just so they might have something to eat. He's scared to death. He's nervous. He's timid. And the angel of the Lord walks up and says, Hail, mighty man of valor. You know, and if you'd have been Gideon and I would have been Gideon and that happened, we'd have turned around and said, I thought I was the only one here. He didn't feel like a mighty man of valor. He didn't feel like a strong man of God. He was timid. But the, the angel said, God sees you as the mighty man of valor. It's important that you see yourself how God sees you, not how, as people tell you you are. Some time ago I did a message, and I might have even written a kernels of truth, on what is your name. And when the, when the Lord was wrestling with Jacob, he said, what is your name? And Jacob said, my name is Deceiver, which is what Jacob means. And God said, not anymore. You're not going to be Deceiver anymore. I'm changing your name. You're going to be Prince. You're going to be Israel. And I said to then, and, I, and some of you remember this, but I'll say it again today. If you're carrying around a name that your father gave you that is not a godly name, burn it. Don't wear it. Now, a lot of people, especially fathers, mothers can do this too, but it's mostly fathers. A lot of people are carrying names, hanging around their neck, invisible, but hanging around their neck that their father has put on them like worthless, never amount to anything, useless. The list goes on. And some people are carrying that name. And I want to tell you that God's given you a name, and that's not it. Do not wear that name. Whoever, boss, whoever has put a name on you that's not what God says, get rid of it. Gideon's in that, in that wine press and he's scared. He has no religious training. He has no political training. And yet God has called him, of all the people, 
in this in this nation. God has called this little guy hiding in a wine press because God delights in advancing the humble. God delights in taking what we don't expect and who we don't expect to be used and moving them into a place of enlarged influence. Here's some keys. Gideon was honest with God. He said, well, I'm just... Gideon was open, and he was responsive. You know the story. He went from 30,000 down to 300 you know, drinking the water out of the out of the river or the lake, and you know, Gideon's go. He's going. I, I don't know what's going to happen here, Lord, but here we go. And of course, he made the fleece. But God took a guy who nobody gave a cre- gave any credit. God God took a guy nobody thought anything of, and He used him to deliver the Israelites from the Midianites. Why? Because he humbled himself. And he let God use him, and he enlarged his scope of influence. So we'll just finish with some conclusions. First of all, God has more for you than you have had. And I don't mean that by possessions or things. God has more grace for you. God has more power for you. God has more anointing for you. God has more direction for you than you've had before. I will say God will, will give you, give it to you incrementally. He tells the Israelites, the Lord your God will clear away these nations before you little by little, little by little. God will, God has more for you to do than you've been doing. Once again, we're not talking about apostle prophets in the lights. We're just talking about you doing what you do where you are and God anointing you to do it because you need to be in a place. I need to be in a place where we can enlarge our scope of influence because I want to tell you there's a revival coming. God has more for you to do than you've done, not necessarily quantitative. Not necessarily a, a number of more for you to do, but more impactful things for you to do. I'm talking about you. Somebody said, well, I think he must be talking about the guy at the end of the row. No, talking to you. Young, old, in between, all of us. God has more for us to do than we've done. And again, it's not necessarily in quantity. And God has more grace waiting to be released to you. Grace in the sense of empowerment. Grace in the sense of giving us the wherewithal. What he has for you to do and what he has for me to do cannot, we cannot do without his power and grace. Without, I just want you today to believe that you're more than you think you are. Now, I'm not trying to get us to be uppity and arrogant. I'm saying that the world beats us up, people beat us up, And they put us down. They try to put us down. And I want to say to you today that I want you to see yourself as God sees you. Not as other people see you. Not even as you see yourselves. Hebrews says he gives more grace. He gives more grace. He giveth more grace when the burdens grow greater. He sendeth more strength when the labors increase. To added afflictions, 
he addeth his mercy. To multiplied trials, he has multiplied peace. And I could go through this as obviously a great old song telling us that he's giving us more grace for where we are. He gives us more grace to get us from where we are to where we need to be. I want you to believe that. Don't don't sit around saying, well, that's for the preacher to do. Preacher's going to do his. I'm saying every person under the sound of my voice, I want you to believe that God has more for you to do and has a place for you to enlarge the scope of your influence. Now, I find I found this on our refrigerator at home. And in our bathroom, my little bride, I don't know if she's trying to tell me something, but I put a, put a uh, slide together, two slides, William. You may think that you are completely insignificant in this world, but someone drinks coffee every morning from your favorite cup that you gave them. Someone heard a song on the radio that reminded them of you. Someone read the book you recommended and plunged headfirst into it. Someone remembered your joke and smiled, returning home from work in the evening. Someone loves himself a little more in God because you gave them a compliment. Never think that you have no influence whatsoever. Your trace, which you leave behind with even a few good deeds, cannot be erased. Don't ever think that you're not affecting anybody. Don't ever think you're not influencing people. You, you know, don't ever think that, that people's lives aren't bettered because of your involvement in their life. It could be just a little thing. You gave them a book. I mean, it could be, it could be anything. So my point today is God increase our scope of influence and let God decide the magnitude of that. Not us. Everybody. So stand with me. Lord Jesus, we see a mission that we cannot do. We see influence that we cannot accomplish. And yet we know that you've called us. You said enlarge the place of your tent. We see uh, a revival on the horizon. We don't know exactly what that looks like, but what we do know is that you need your people to be able to be those who are influencers in the midst of that revival. Your people need to embrace those whose hearts are being changed so that we can make disciples of all nations. Lord, help every person under the sound of my voice see themselves the way you see them. Let every one of us, Lord God, today see ourselves as the person that God has taken from maybe obscurity into a place of being able to influence people for the kingdom of God. Touch our hearts, mold our hearts, and prepare our hearts. And we continue to pray, Lord Jesus, what you prayed and when you said your kingdom come and your will be done on earth like it is in heaven. Lord, we pray that every day your kingdom would be extended to one heart at a time and that they would respond to the voice of your Holy Spirit and the empowering grace that you give them. 
I thank you for this group today. I thank you for those at home who've been listening and worshiping. And I pray that you continue to speak to us and change the way we think, change the way we see, so that we can be those who embrace the harvest for you. And I thank you today in the name of Jesus, I pray. Everybody said amen. Amen. God bless you for being attentive. May God's word continue to work in your hearts. You're dismissed.